0: Good morning ladies I am so glad to be with here with you this morning in this place what a joy what a joy to be here with you I am Deb Haygood and I am part of the uh, teaching team for the women in the word uh, this semester and it is quite an honor to be a part of that And I want to thank the uh, music team. That was beautiful. And thank you, Karen, um, for that time of worship where we lifted up our praises to God through song. And individually, those were encouraging praises um, as we lift up and remember the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God. Thank you so much for that. And thank you, each one of you, for being here this morning. Uh, What a thrill to see all of you. There are so many places you could be and uh, so many things you could be doing that it uh, thrills my heart to know that you've chosen to be here studying the Word of God. So thank you for being here and what a great way to begin 2013. I hope that your Thanksgiving was filled with good food, and your Christmas was merry, and your New Year was happy. I went to uh, Miami, Florida, my hometown, for Christmas. Uh, So in a way, I guess you could say I was coming home for Christmas. And uh, when I got back, I was talking to a friend, and I described it as uh, the best of times and the worst of times. It was the best of times because my husband and all my children and all my grandchildren, we all went to Miami and we stayed at my mom's house. And it was the best of times. My sister and her husband and her four boys were there um, often and there in high school and college. So lots of excitement. We played games, celebrated Jesus. It was the best of times. And then Christmas morning, we read the story of Jesus. We celebrated his birth. And then I watched my little grandchildren open up their presents. And it was the best of times. I'll never forget little Finley. She's my granddaughter that's two and a half. She got her a little gift. And she said, Grammy, what could it be? What could it be? And I thought, oh, that is the sweetest thing. What could it be? It was the best of times. And then the flu swept through. And it was the worst of times (laughs) because those that were sick were trying to find a bed to lay down in. And all of a sudden, my mom's house seemed a lot smaller than it had been. And the rest of us that were well, we were just trying to figure out what to do and how to stay out of their way. It was the worst of times. But then... The weather got better, some of them got better. We went to the beach, and it was the best of times as this 85, sunshiny day, blue water at the beach, watching the grass. It was the best of times. And then I had to pack up and leave, and Fort Worth was a little cold and uh, very gray, and I got back home and thought, oh, no, this is the worst of times. But then I began to study this book of Ezra, And quickly, good times again. You know, maybe the holidays were like that for you. Maybe for some of you, it was the very best of times. You celebrated Jesus with your family or friends or loved ones. It was the best of time. But I know for some of you that maybe it was the worst of times. Maybe this had been a hard year. You'd lost a loved one. Maybe you had the flu on Christmas Day. Maybe you couldn't be with those that you loved because that beautiful snowfall that everyone rejoiced in kept you from getting to the family and friends that you wanted to that night. Maybe you were working. Maybe things were difficult. Maybe it was the worst of times for you. But now we're here today, and this is a good time. And as we um, open up the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what we're going to study this semester, we've entitled it Coming Home. Coming Home because these two books talk about the Jewish exiles in Babylon returning to Judah, their homeland. And for these people, we're going to see this semester, this was the best of times, and this was the worst of times. It was the best of times as they came home and they celebrated with joy and gladness being there. And it was the worst of times as they faced um, hardships and opposition and drastic consequences for their sin. Uh, Some of you might have thought Ezra was going to be a little boring. Um, I think you're going to find it very exciting because it's filled with all these emotions. I thought, Ezra sounded a little boring, so I'll have to admit to you, I really had never studied Ezra in much depth until this summer, and what an amazing, exciting book it is, so I am glad that you are here with us this semester. In this study, we're going to look at God fulfilling his promise to these people, and we're going to see the providence of God working to fulfill that promise to his people, Ezra is a priest and he wrote the book of Ezra and probably the book of Nehemiah as well under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now um, there's other themes besides the promises and providence of God and two of those are rebuilding and restoration. We're going to see a lot of rebuilding and restoration in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra they rebuild the temple and in Nehemiah they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in Ezra, first we see this physical restoration, restoring the temple, and then secondly we're going to see spiritual restoration as Ezra restores um, their true worship, as he reestablishes the authority of God's law in the lives of the Jewish people, and as he institute reforms for their everyday life, spiritual restoration. Now some of you still may be thinking out there, Now, why am I studying Ezra? You know, what does this mean to me? Why do I care about rebuilding the temple and the walls? You know, where's Jesus in all of this? And I think those are good questions. In fact, they're foundational for the study of Ezra. And so I want to take some time this morning to answer those questions. Now, Ezra is a book of history. Really, the whole first half of the Bible is all history. And if you look at um, the word history on your outline, look at it closely, say it slowly, His story, His story, you kind of hear His story. And that's what history is. It's His story. It's God's story of love and redemption for mankind. It's a love story. And we all love love stories, and this one we love especially because we're in it. We're part of this love story. If you go back to the very beginning, we see the story begin, Genesis 1.1. God creates the world and everything in it, and then he creates the human race. He creates mankind, Adam and Eve. And pretty quickly, we see them rebel against God. Man is rebellious, and we see God Pursue them in love and mercy. We see God's grace. And pretty much that's what happens in the beginning of generation, in the beginning of Genesis. We have rebellious man and we have a gracious God. Uh, The message of the Bible is really God pursuing a rebel race in love and mercy to save us. That is the message. In fact, in Genesis 3, we see God that already God already has a plan for a savior and that's on your verse sheet. Genesis 3.15, this is God talking to Satan who came to Eve, Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now enmity means hatred or hostility. And God is talking to Satan here and his offspring, those will be the ones that follow him. And this offspring that he refers to of a woman, this is a reference to Jesus. Jesus. Already we see our Savior in Genesis 3. This is a reference to Jesus. He is going to crush the head of Satan, but he, uh, Satan will strike his heel. That's a reference to, it's referring to the cross and the suffering on the cross. But when Jesus is resurrected from the grave, he ultimately crushes the power of Satan. Here we see our Savior in the very beginning of Genesis <clears throat> then in Genesis 12, God is going to create a special people. He's going to create um, kind of a new people, a holy people. Um, they will be called his people. And he's going to do this as a demonstration to the world what it can be like to walk with God. And so he calls Abram from the Ur of Chaldees. That is in modern day Iraq, and he calls him, he says to him, I am going, he promises him three things. This is this great covenant, uh, unconditional covenant. First thing, I'm going to give you land. And so he says, Come to this land that I have for you in Canaan, present day Israel. Secondly, I'm going to give you descendants. And um, these descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. In chapter 15, he tells Abraham, Look up at the sky and see the stars. That's how many descendants you will have, more than you can count. And the third thing he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and you will be a blessing to all people. And I have that verse on your verse sheet, Genesis 12, 3. And if you will look at the last half of that, it says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed by you. What does that mean? Well, who is going to bless all peoples of the world? Jesus So once again, we see a reference to our Savior, Jesus. And now we know he's going to come from the line of Abraham. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham. So Abraham does have Isaac, and this is a miracle in itself because Sarah and Abraham are very old, 100 at the time. And then Isaac has Jacob. And then Jacob, who God changes his name to Israel, Jacob has 12 sons and their children and their children's children and so on they become the families, the 12 families of Israel or we call them the 12 tribes of Israel now the 10 older brothers they sell Joseph into slavery, their younger brother and he is taken off to Egypt but God has another plan for Joseph and so while he's there um, he becomes the right hand man to Pharaoh now there's going to be a famine in the land but Joseph knows about this from a dream, so Egypt is prepared for it. So, when his father and brothers come to Egypt to get food, they are reunited with Joseph. And so, the last chapters of Genesis are a beautiful picture of love and forgiveness and reconciliation between Joseph and his father and brothers. And it's a great picture of our loving God, of forgiveness. And how he wants to re- reconcile with us. So uh, Genesis ends and Exodus opens 400 years later. And the good news is these uh, 12 tribes of Israel have multiplied into 2 million people. Maybe some say even 4 million people. It is large. The bad news is they are slaves in Egypt. And so God sends Moses to deliver his people. And it's not easy. Um, it takes ten plagues. And that tenth plague is what does it. Because the angel of death comes and takes the firstborn out of every household. Except for the Israelites who have put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, and the death angel passes over. Ted talked about that last Sunday, and we're going to talk about the Passover again in a few weeks, so I wanted to touch on that. So after this 10th plague, Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, go, go, take your people and go. And so he does, and they leave Egypt, and the Red Sea parts, they cross through on dry land, and Moses takes them to Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai is very important and it's foundational for our study in Ezra. So listen, God gives Moses two things. One, Moses gets the law from God. Now the law, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws in Exodus and Leviticus, these are for the people of Israel's benefit. The law was a good thing. It wasn't God trying to put a fun limit on the Israelites. It was a good thing to bless them and to prosper them and to protect them. You you all know about the fun limit. If you have teenagers and you've ever said, you know, you need to be home by midnight, and they say, are you the fun police? You know, fun limit? You've probably heard something uh, in that way. No, no we don't want to put a fun limit on our kids we want to protect them we love them we want to bless them and so we give them these limits these were what the laws were like for the Israelites they were to be God's blessing and protection on them Also, they were supposed to uh, be a demonstration of what it's like to walk with God. What it's like to be blessed by this living God. And so all the pagan nations around them, the Gentiles around them, would see this demonstration. And they too would want to worship God and follow after God. Now the Israelites didn't do this very well. But we can't be too hard on them because sometimes we do not live our lives um, showing the love of Jesus very well. So they they sometimes forgot that this was part of their um, job as walking with the Lord. That this was a demonstration of his love. Because you remember back with that covenant, God is going to bless all peoples. It's always been about all people, not just his special race. And so um, they get the law the second thing they get is the pattern for the tabernacle now the tabernacle that means tent this is going to be a place to worship God and God gives very specific instructions and it's gonna have um, cloths that hang down on poles and it'll have a covering and in the middle of this tent it's going to be very large would be an altar and this is where the priests would offer the sacrifices to god for the people's sin and then past that is another little tent inside this big tent and this is the holy of holies and ladies this is where the spirit of god dwelt the shekinah glory god's spirit dwelt among them in the holy of holies in this tabernacle And it was mobile because they were traveling through the wilderness going to the promised land. And so they could pack it up and take it with them. And um, then they would set it back up again to worship God. And so this is what they did. But this journey that should have only taken a few weeks ended up taking 40 years because of the Israelites' disobedience. But they finally get to the banks of the Jordan River. And before they go in to cross into that promised land, that land that God had promised to Abraham, Moses tells them, remember God, remember God, this is what the book of Deuteronomy is all about, he says, remember God, follow God, follow after him, he wants to bless you, he wants to um, prosper you, he loves you, because this is what God had said back with the the commandments, he had said, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you don't obey me, if you turn away from me, then you're going to experience disappointment and uh, discipline and disaster and even death. So follow me. Um, Moses reminds them of that. Remember God. They cross over into the leadership of Joshua. They settle the land. The 12 tribes divide it up. Um, They are ruled by God through judges, and unfortunately, they don't remember God very often. This is not a good uh, time in their history. And finally, after about 300 years of that, they call out to God and say, We want an earthly king to rule over us. And so God says, Okay, he appoints Saul. He does okay for a while, but he too, rebellious man, turns away from God. And so God appoints David. And he tells Samuel, Go and anoint David to be the king of Israel. Because David, this young shepherd boy, is a man after my own heart. He is going to follow me. So David becomes king. And while he's king, he wants to build for God a beautiful temple. A permanent, glorious temple. Because they're still worshiping God in this tabernacle. So God tells David, No, you can make up the plans, but it will be your son Solomon that builds this temple. But for you I have a promise. And I wrote the promise on your verse sheet. It's second Samuel seven sixteen. And this is the promise God gave to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now this is important to a king. And so what does that mean? Well, once again, this is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is going to be the one who comes from the line of David to reign forever. His kingdom will reign forever. So now we know Jesus is going to be from the line of David, who was from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the uh, fourth son of Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. So here we see this promise of the Savior coming through. Now he's coming from the line of David. And you might remember as you studied the Christmas story that when the angel came to Mary and said she was going to conceive and um, be, become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he describes Jesus to her, and this is what he says in Luke 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob Forever. His kingdom will never end. Do you see those same words? Kingdom and house and throne. It's the same promise that he had given David. And Je- Jesus is coming again. The second time to reign um, forever. Ex- and then let's go on. We see that um, after... David dies, Solomon does indeed build this glorious temple for God. We're going to be talking about that temple, so I wanted to point that out here beautiful, glorious temple in Jerusalem for God. And we also know uh, some things about Solomon, that he was a very wise man, the wisest in all the world. Because last semester when we did Proverbs, we said Solomon wrote Proverbs. But we also said he didn't always apply God's wisdom to his own life. He rebelled and did things that God had told him not to do. One was to marry foreign wives. He said, don't marry foreign wives because they will turn your heart against me. But... Solomon married foreign wives and that is exactly what happened. He turns away from God and this would have drastic consequences for the nation Israel. Because when Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king and then there is a revolt. And the ten tribes that are in the north, they break away and so the kingdom is divided in two. The northern kingdom has the ten tribes, they keep the name Israel. The southern kingdom is just two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and they are called Judah. But the southern kingdom, this is where Jerusalem is. This is where the temple is. This is where these kings from the line of David reign in the southern kingdom. And this is a terrible time for the nation Israel. They turn away from God. In the northern kingdom, there are no good kings that follow God. A few in the southern kingdom. But a very hard time. So God sends the prophets now to remind them that... Hey, God loves you. Don't forget, God is once again pursuing them with love and mercy. And the prophets say, turn back to God, follow him, or you are going to end up in destruction. But they do not listen to the prophets. So God allows the Assyrians, world power, to conquer the northern kingdom. And those ten tribes are scattered. But he gives Judah 150 more years to turn back to him. This is when Isaiah and Jeremiah are prophesying big time to the southern kingdom. Turn back to God. Do you see what happened in Israel? But they refused. And so as you read today in your small groups, God allows Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, they've become the world power, he allows them to come and take uh, Judah, God's people, into captivity to Babylon. And that's where um, we're going to uh, open up here today with Ezra. Actually, we studied last year Daniel, and we saw Daniel was um, a captive in Babylon during this captivity. And you know that we read that verse when Daniel had opened the scroll of Jeremiah and read this promise that God had given through Jeremiah to his people. And it said that they would be in captivity for 70 years And then God promised to bring them home. And that's what's happening when Ezra 1 opens up. Now, why is keeping this promise so important? That was our our original question. Why is God keeping the promise to his people so important? Well, one, it shows that he has not forgotten Israel and that he is going to keep his promise. He is a God that keeps his promise. And it also shows that he had not forgotten his promise to Abraham. That land that he had promised to Abraham and for his descendants, we're going to see that promise is important to show Israel that he had not forgotten Abraham. Also, the rebuilding of the temple was central to their worship of God, and this needed to happen. So this rebuilding of the temple, this bringing back the people of God together to worship him needed to happen. Why? Because the Savior is coming. This Savior that we have been talking about from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, from a descendant of Abraham. He is coming. And he's coming among these people to this place. Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, not Babylon. And so keeping this promise to his people is foundational for the coming of Jesus. So now you see why Ezra is so important. It's very important to who we are and to our spiritual life. And it's all about Jesus. So let's turn to chapter 1 of Ezra and let's see how this is going to happen. Ezra, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. So you see here, the Persians have become the world power. They have defeated the Babylonians. And Cyrus is king of the Persians. And God is going to use Cyrus to um, fulfill this promise ...that he made to his people 70 years before. So uh, on your verse sheet, we have that. Not verse sheet, excuse me, on your outline. And the promise from Jeremiah 29.10, let's read it. It says this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you... ...and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And this place is Judah. Uh, Jeremiah was in Judah when God gave him this promise... So God is going to fulfill his promise to his people that he had given so many years ago. The captives, the exiles in Babylon would return to Judah. So let's go on and look at what this um, proclamation is let me say, you're going to see a lot of names for, I want to throw this in here, uh, for the Israelites. They're going to be called the remnant, survivors, exiles, captives, um, the children of God, the Jews, uh, Judah and Benjamin. We're going to see those names, and they all refer to the people of God, the Israelites. So let's read this proclamation, verse 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem." So we see this edict is what allows God's people to return home. This proclamation allows God's people to return home. And the emphasis here is to rebuild the temple. Now I want to say Cyrus was not a follower of God. He was not a believer in God. From history we know that he worshipped the Persian gods Bel and Nebo. But we also know from secular history that Cyrus believed that if he let conquered peoples go back to their lands and set up their old religious systems that their gods would put in a good word to his gods and that would be a good thing for him. Cyrus does not realize that this God of heaven he refers to here is the one and only true and living God. He doesn't realize that. God is using Cyrus um, to work out his will. Now, Ezra uses this title, um, God of Heaven, nine times in the book of Ezra. And uh, it's more than we see anywhere else in the Bible. And it signifies that the Lord reigns from heaven. He is sovereign and powerful. That he is more powerful than any king on earth. And so uh, be looking for that uh, title of God, God of heaven, as you read through Ezra. And then verse 3 here tells us that any of God's people may go back to Jerusalem... This is the providence of God. The providence of God seen here. It's God working through a foreign, unbelieving king to do God's will so that God can fulfill this promise to his people. Now, on your verse sheet right above the graph, I have a definition of providence because we're going to be talking a lot about the providence of God this semester. And it says, Providence is God bringing his will to pass so that all of life... All of life, that's the world and our lives, all of life lies under his control for the purpose of Christ incarnate. Christ incarnate is uh, Jesus coming to earth fully man and fully God. That's what that means, Christ incarnate. And the purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to reveal the Father so we could know God and to give his life as a sacrifice, as an atonement for our sin, that we could have a relationship with this God. So that providence has to do with God bringing his will to pass for the purpose of Christ incarnate. And so we're going to... um, See here that the Jewish people do go back to Jerusalem, and they go back in three waves. And I want to um, say that, to tell you that right here. That's what that graph is on the bottom of your first sheet. And the first group of Jews return to uh, Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel. I love that word, Zerubbabel. We're going to be talking about him. And um, this group is going to rebuild the temple. And these are chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. And then the second wave comes back um, under the leadership of Ezra. And that is 80 years after Zerubbabel first leaves. And it's under the leadership of Ezra. And those are chapters 7 through 10. And we're going to see Ezra uh, dealing with their spiritual restoration. He is going to bring back um, worship and the word of God. He emphasizes true worship and authority, the authority of the word of God to do the spiritual restoration. And then the third return is under the leadership of Nehemiah. That happens about 14 years after Ezra comes back. And um, this group is going to build, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and that's important as well. We'll be talking about Nehemiah later in the semester. That's the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to look at that as well. So back to verse 4 let 's finish this proclamation, and the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold with goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem once again, we see the providence of God he is providing for them through their unbelieving um, pagan neighbors they are to give them goods and gold and silver for this trip. This is a long trip and they're going to need lots of supplies. And not only that, they're going to give them things that they can take back to the temple as offerings. You know, this reminds us a little bit of when the um, Israelites left Egypt. And they made that exodus. Because at that time, God moved the hearts of the uh, Egyptians. And when they asked for gold and silver and clothing, the Egyptians gave it to the Israelites as they were fleeing Egypt. And I've got that verse on your verse sheet. You can look at that later. And then in verse um, 5 we read, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, let, let me talk here a little bit about these names, Jude and Benjamin. We've talked about that. They are the tribes of the southern kingdom. That's who was taken into captivity. So that makes sense that it's the people of the tribes of Jude and Benjamin going back to Judah. And then the priests and the Levites here, let me tell you what that is. The um, We have to... Kind of go back to Moses for this. Levi was one of the 12 tribes. He was the third son of Jacob. Now, Moses was from the tribe of Levi. And when he got the pattern for the tabernacle, how to build it, uh, God said that the tribe of Levi was going to be the special tribe that was going to take care of the temple and all of the things that were going on, this tabernacle. And he appointed Aaron that's Moses' brother, to be the high priest. And he would be the one that would be doing these sacrifices. Now, Aaron, brother of Moses, he's from the tribe of Levi. And so we have the priest coming from the tribe of Levi and from the line of Aaron. The rest of the people from the tribe of Levi, they are Levites. And they were important. They had important roles in the temple worship as well. They helped with the temple worship. They also were out in the cities and villages teaching the people the word of God. So to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron. Uh, The rest were Levites. And when they got to the Jordan River and went into the Promised Land, the tribe of Levi did not get one specific part of land. Instead, they were spread throughout Israel. Why? To teach the Word of God to the people. So they were very important. So that's the priests and the Levites. We're going to be talking about them a lot in the book of Ezra. By the way, do you remember I said Ezra was a priest? Ezra was from the tribe of Levi... From the line of Aaron. Just um, uh, good to know. Good. In case, maybe it's good to know. All right. We're going to talk about that later as well. Okay, that's the priests and the Levites. And do you see here everyone whose heart God had moved? God's providence again. He's moving the hearts of his people to go back to Judah. And so everyone that goes back had been listening to God, had been attentive to God, was obeying God as he moved them to go back to um, Judah. And this was not an easy trip. And I have a map. We can take down our... Tiny little timeline there. Okay, we're going to put up this map, and we're going to see. It was uh, many, many miles. They're in Babylon. That's like present-day Iraq. And do you see that to the right of the screen? And they go up and all the way down to Jerusalem. That's present-day Israel. It was not a short trip, and it was not an easy trip. And they are provided for by God through their neighbors. And let's read that in verse 6. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Here we see the providence of God. God's sovereign will over all things. He's moving through their unbelieving pagan neighbors to provide for them for this trip. And then in verses 7 uh, through 11, we're going to see God's providence through Cyrus again. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the inventory. And here we see the gold dishes and silvers and bowls. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shezbazar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So we see God working through Cyrus to return the temple treasures back to God's temple in Jerusalem. Now, there's a question I have on your verse sheet, by the way, Daniel. I'm not going to take time to um, read it. But we you read today about Nebuchadnezzar taking these gold treasures. We also read in Daniel where it talks about how Nebuchadnezzar took these gold treasures, gold things from the temple back to Jerusalem back to Babylon. And I want to say real quickly before we um, wrap up this chapter, who is Shezbazar? You know, there's much debate among scholars and theologians who is Shezbazar. Um, So I'm not going to go into all of the different uh, possibilities. The one that makes the most sense to me is that Shezbazar is a Babylonian name for Zerubbabel. We know that Zerubbabel could be called a prince of Judah because he was the grandson of King Jehoiakim who was one of the last uh, kings in Judah before the captivity. So he could have been called the prince of Judah. We also know that he led these Jews back too. So I think that... um, That is what Shezbazar is referring to, Zerubbabel. We know that the Babylonians gave the uh, Israelites names. Daniel, for instance, was called Belteshazzar. And you remember his three um, Hebrew friends were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that was a common thing for them to give them a Babylonian or official court name. So I think that Bazar here is referring to Zerubbabel. And we're going to be looking at him more in um, the weeks to come. Also, the numbers don't add up. Don't worry about that, that the numbers don't add up. I think this inventory is the big things. Any of you that have traveled overseas, when you're coming back into customs, you have to write out, you know, what you're bringing back. And you usually put the big things, like coming back from Africa, um, carved wooden nativity, $40, Uh, picture, $10. Uh, numerous bracelets, beads, etc., you know, $5. You, you just clump that together. I think that is what's happened here. The big things are in the inventory, but there was a total of 54 articles of gold. Um, I think the important thing is here, it was worth a lot of money, and they were being returned back to Jerusalem, to the temple of God. So today we've set the stage for the book of Ezra. We've seen God keeping his promise to return his people to their homeland. We've talked about God's providence, God bringing his will to pass. We've seen God, a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, a God always pursuing his people with love and mercy, pursuing us with love and mercy. He is not a God who stays angry forever. He is quick to forgive You know, we have um, talked about restoration and restoring in this book of Ezra. And I think January is a great time to start, Ezra, because we're all about resolutions and reforms and restoration as we begin this new year. I think as we study um, Ezra and see how they restore true worship in their own lives how we might consider the importance of true worship in our lives. Worship worship is praising God, um, expressing love to God, adoring Him, and delighting in Him. We're going to think a lot about the importance of true worship in our own lives. Secondly, um, while Ezra is reestablishing God's authority in the lives of the Israelites back in Judah... It will be a time for us. And that's why you all are here studying the word of God. We can think about and talk about the importance of the authority of God's word in our own life. Another lesson for us is that we can remember today. I want you to remember God keeps his promises today. Just like he kept his promises back then, we know he can keep his promises today. What are his promises? You have to read the word of God to know his promises. I put a couple on your verse sheet that are pretty familiar. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is Jesus giving us that promise. If we believe in him, we will have eternal life. A second one, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus is with us always. He is in this room with us even now. Those are great promises, and those are just two of many that we see in Scripture and a fourth thing, look for God's providence in your own life and in the world around you. Look for God's providence in the world around you. God is at work. When things seem impossible, when we look at the world events and we begin to be depressed or sad or, or confused, trust God. God is working this out. Jesus is coming back. He is working His will um, to bring that Jesus coming back again as an actual thing. He is at work in our lives. So. I hope this has encouraged you. I hope this has excited you to study Ezra. I hope it's motivated you to go out and do those homework questions and then come back next week and share, share, share with your small group. If you don't understand some of them, skip it and go on to the next. Um, It's important just to be reading the Word of God because it's my prayer that this semester all of us would experience the promises and the providence of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good God. You are good all the time. Father, you love us. You pursue us with grace and mercy. Sometimes we don't even see it, Lord. And yet when we look around, we realize that's what you're doing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a promise keeper. Thank you that we can study Ezra and Nehemiah this semester. And as we see you keeping your promises there, we to know that you are keeping your promises to us today. And Father, we, as we see your providence at work back then, we know that your will is at work in our lives and in our world today. And I thank you for that, Father, that you are in control and that I can rest in that and trust you. Lord, bless these women that have come out. Bless them. Um, encourage them. Be with them. And I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.